From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, Purplish puts this week's primary into perspective. It is the dawn of a new day in the Colorado GOP. I haven't been this excited to be a Republican in almost a decade. Also, we asked Avs fans along the Stanley Cup parade route about their jerseys. It's been worn by me, my late mom. Um, I've had it since the 01 season when they won the cup. So it's been 21 years and strong, man. 21 years and strong. Later, we remember former Bronco Marlon Briscoe, the first black starting quarterback in modern American football. You know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. Plus, get to know our new Colorado Matters co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start this show with some cheer. I walked the parade route Thursday as folks cheered on the Colorado Avalanche and their sparkling Stanley Cup. And I had a question for folks. What's the story behind your Avs attire? Cindy Fahey, and I'm from Strasburg, Colorado, on the Eastern Plains. Tell me about your jersey. It is not the current logo. It is not. This is the Nordiques. This is a jersey from the very first team. And help people understand the connection between the Nordiques from Quebec City to Denver. The Nordiques came to Denver, thus we became the Avalanche. So this jersey, you've had it for? Not very long. It was a Valentine's present from my husband. And how did you react to getting a jersey for Valentine's Day? Oh my God. It was hanging up on the door of the closet, and I was shocked because there's nothing else I wanted. All I wanted was a McKinnon Nordic jersey. You got what you wanted, and now you're turning so I can see McKinnon. Is McKinnon your favorite player? Of course. And Eric Johnson, and Rantanen. Name them. I love them all. I love them all. Yeah, I'm Jordan. I'm from Denver here. Born and raised my whole life. Tell me about your jersey. I'm wearing Landeskog, you know, got to represent the captain. You know, he's my favorite player because his nickname is the Viking, so. Well, why do you gravitate towards the Viking? Uh, Vikings are my ancestors. Kind of have the look of a Viking as well. Is this a new jersey in celebration of the victory, or is this one you've had for a while? Actually, it's one that I've only had for this year. I got it around Christmas time, but I was celebrating the whole season with it, you know? I never took, never washed it. <laughs> oh, it's, this is an unwashed jersey? Yes, yeah, unwashed. Do you think that's why they won? <laughs> you know, I like to attribute it to that, but I don't think so. They're just a great team overall. Trey, tell me about your jersey. Got my jersey when I was in middle school, so still rocking it. <laughs> How long ago was that? Can you do the math for me? 
over 15 years. Mm-hmm. Tell me whose name is on your jersey. This is someone who's no longer with the team, right? Patrick Waugh. Love Waugh. Loved him as a coach, loved him as a player. Best goalie there is. How did it feel to put on this jersey this morning? I always put it on, so just another day. <laughs> and I live up in Westminster. And Jordan, tell me about this standout jersey. I haven't seen one like it. So this is the St. Patrick's Day version of the Avalanche jersey. Um, (laughs) But I don't get numbers on my jersey because I think it's bad luck because every time I've gotten a number or a player jersey, then they get traded or they retire or they leave. Where did you find a St. Patrick's Day version jersey? Uh, They sell them at the Ball Arena, obviously not now because they're all sold out of jerseys. But I got this, what, earlier this year during the regular season? Okay, so this is not your first jersey, but it is your first jersey without a name? Yes, correct. Oh, so this is why they won? Maybe. (laughs) Yes. Michael and I live in Brighton, Colorado. So this jersey is what they call the uh, Deadhead Jersey Night. So what they'll do is they will have a cover band come in for the Grateful Dead on a night that uh, everybody's there at a game, and they actually will sell these jerseys as with the price of the tickets. Tell me what's on the front of it. So on the front of it, you've got the Deadhead with the avalanche symbol inside the head. You've got the bears from the Grateful Dead in the top right-hand corner. Unfortunately, because of the way the jersey's made, it ends up in the armpit all the time, which I hate. And the tie-dye. Oh, of course. That's the standard thing for the Grateful Dead was the tie-dye motif. And your whole family, I guess this is your, these are related to you, these people? Yes, I'm a single father of four, and I brought all four kids out, and I called off of work today. Anyone else want to talk about their jersey? <laughs> no. Okay, Dad's good. Oh, yes. Tell me about your face paint. About my face paint, I just like how I did it because it's the avalanche colors, and it just really brings out the color for the avalanche since we're avalanche fans. My name is Dion Pearson. I live in the Denver area. And Dion, tell me about your jersey. The first thing that stands out to me is it seems well worn. Yes, sir. It's uh, been worn by me, my late mom. Um, I've had it since the 01 season when they won the cup. So it's been 21 years and strong, man. 21 years and strong. It's held up well, though. Yes, it has. It's, it's been worn in precious times and, you know, through the struggles and through the good times now here at the parade. You said that your late mother wore it. Uh, yes, she passed away of breast cancer in 2020, so she's here and representing the abs with us in heart, you know. You feel that she's with you right always, now. Always, 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 yes. And she loved Tampa and she loved the abs. She would have picked the abs over Tampa, so now, you know, she got her wish. She got her wish, so. How did it feel to put on this morning? Uh, it felt amazing. I haven't taken it off. The, I got the championship uh, shirt underneath, too, so. You've got layers. That off. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Representing strong. giving me the shirts off their back, or at least the stories of them. Back in a moment with the latest episode of Purplish, what we learned about the Colorado GOP and unaffiliated voters from this week's primary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? 
During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside like peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to like dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We everywhere you listen. The primary election may prove to be a defining moment for the Republican Party in Colorado. Let's get end-of-the-week perspective now with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Benta Berglund and Andrew Kenny. Over the last couple of weeks, it felt like anything could happen in the Republican primaries in Colorado. There was a ton of dark money flying around. There was no public polling, so we had no clue what was really happening between the candidates. There were some somewhat unusual patterns in the turnout data. And basically, people in the political world, no matter who they were rooting for, seemed pretty nervous. It makes it really hard to predict what's going on because these are you know, open races with candidates that are not well-defined. But within a few minutes after polls closed at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, it was pretty much already over. That is the sound, essentially, of the Republican establishment starting the victory party. In this case, it was specifically at the Joe O'Day for Senate celebration. The moderate, centrist candidates swept all of the GOP statewide primaries, and Colorado's most prominent election deniers were defeated. To hear some people put it, maybe a little dramatically, it was the beginning of a new chapter of Colorado politics. It is the dawn of a new day in the Colorado GOP. We are serious about winning. We have nominated candidates who resonate with Colorado. I haven't been this excited to be a Republican uh, in almost a decade. That was GOP State Representative Colin Larson basking in the results in the U.S. Senate, Governor, and Secretary of State primaries. So now we're going to dig in a little more. Why did these results give Republican power players so much hope? And is that going to last all the way through the general election in November? We're going to talk today about how, at the statewide level, some of the most moderate Republicans were triumphant, whether this opens opportunities for the party to actually regain some degree of power in Colorado, and also some of the really interesting theories about why exactly what happened happened. So you and I were both on Tuesday night at primary watch parties, very different primary watch parties. You were mostly at one for Tina Peters, the candidate for Secretary of State, and I'm dying to hear more about that. But first, let's keep going with the party I was at, again for Joe O'Day, who won the nomination for U.S. Senate. What a moment, what a team, and what a victory. I mean, come on. Winning that made him the top of the ticket candidate for Republicans. It's kind of the biggest race that'll have the most attention going into November, the one with the most money. And I heard one political consultant actually describing himself already as an O'Day Republican, kind of like this Mm. Joe O'Day guy is the new masthead of the Republican Party in this state. Well, that would definitely be a shift for the Republican Party in Colorado, because for the last few years, the most prominent member of the party has been Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Mm -hmm. And O'Day is selling himself as a moderate and trying to focus on economics and crime, not social issues. And he also has a big change in tone from Boebert. Yeah, he plays as much more moderate than a lot of other candidates. Um, And in his speech, his victory speech, he really sold himself as not an ideologue, not a Trump guy, he didn't mention Trump, but as this kind of unique 
flavor of Colorado independent Republican. I'll be more like a Republican Joe Manchin. I'll vote my conscience. I'll make tough choices. I will ruffle feathers. So this is basically the candidate, Joe O'Day, that a lot of Democrats and Republicans feel has the best chance of knocking off an incumbent. He'll be going up against Senator Michael Bennett and maybe delivering that new day that we just heard about for Colorado conservatives. And we certainly saw that O'Day was not the candidate Democrats wanted to go up against because in the primary, Democratic groups spent a lot of money trying to defeat O'Day, trying to boost his primary opponent, Ron mm-hmm. Hanks. So Democrats clearly feel that O'Day is going to be tougher to defeat in the general election. Yeah, a basic political wisdom that the more moderate candidate will pick up more supporters, especially in a blue and moderate state. And by the way, that spending from the outside groups, Joe O'Day picked that up and ran with that in his speech. It is a fantastic night to be an American here in Colorado. Not such a good night to be a Democratic super PAC. He basically portrayed it as if he had not beaten Ron Hanks, his opponent. He had beaten Chuck Schumer, the Mm. Democratic leader. You know what that scoreboard says tonight? This is Joe Day one, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Michael Bennett, zero. So what did you think of his speech overall? Well, first of all, he was giving this speech at Mile High Station, which is this event center in Denver that he actually owns. He made his personal fortune before that, though, in a construction business. And he talked a lot in his speech about being a carpenter and a contractor and an everyday Joe who's going to go take it to Michael Bennett. And yeah, when I was watching him, I wasn't sure what to expect. He was pretty quiet at the party beforehand, just kind of watching his family members speak to introduce him. But once he got up there, he kind of gave a ripping speech. Like he he was uh, quite confident and he spoke in a way that I don't know. I personally think he's going to be able to do pretty well on the campaign trail. People are going to enjoy hearing from him, even if they don't agree with his policies necessarily. So you had mentioned at this O'Day watch party that a lot of people who were part of the Republican establishment were mm-hmm. there. So is that like people we would know from the state capitol or who who was part of this crowd? Yeah, that's kind of an insidery term, but it's basically it's the people who, who run the Republican Party, the ones who are still in charge of it, but for years have been kind of besieged by the right wing. Uh, people like House Minority Leader Hugh McKean, who... Um, you know, has to keep all the Republicans in line in the legislature and is always getting attacked from the guys on his right. And for him, this was a big day. Like, uh, by the way, he had just beaten back his own primary challenger from the right. And he was he was quite happy for the establishment, the moderate Republicans, whatever you want to call them, to have retained control of the party. I actually think that this is the Republican Party voters have been waiting for. This is the Republican Party that is talking about the things that matter to families. What's the cost of living? Can they afford to keep putting gas in their car to get to work? These were critical races for Republicans because we've talked a lot about how the party's chances in November really come down to who wins these primaries. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to have success up and down the ballot, they need candidates that people think have the best shot to win in a state with lots of unaffiliated voters. Yeah, and that was the question that they were basically putting before their party base. They're saying, do you all want to go for ideologues, far-right candidates who are going to tow all the party lines, or do you want to go for somebody who's more electable, who's going to be more appealing? And from what we saw, we'll get into why, 
the idea that you should elect more competitive, more electable candidates is the one that succeeded in this Republican primary. Yeah. And so I actually talked to two women who perfectly encapsulate that philosophy, I guess. They <laughs> were at the watch party for Heidi Ganahl, who is the nominee for governor. I'm backing her because she has what it takes to win. And these women actually voted for all of the winning statewide candidates, hmm. you know, the candidates that were more moderate. They so. scored bingo. Yeah, exactly. Ganahl, O'Day. And they said even though they don't agree with all of their positions. I think that he uh, could win easier over the Democratic candidate, and then we can work on baby steps, like I was just telling you, baby steps. Then we work on, on gaining more traction with some of the things that he disagrees with um, after the fact. So what's like an example of where they split with the candidates? Abortion. The, the women I talked to are more conservative on abortion than O'Day. Uh-huh. And I'd covered the question of whether O'Day's willingness to keep abortion legal in the early stages of pregnancy would impact the outcome for voters who don't support abortion access. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the women I talked to, it didn't impact their vote. They, they still said they wanted O'Day elected. And then we work on gaining more traction with some of the things that he disagrees with after the fact. And the women said, look, they just want candidates who would listen, be moderate, and help Republicans make gains this fall. So electability was the key factor for these voters. Well, it sounds like those voters heard the establishment message loud and clear, which is basically 2022 huge opportunity for Republicans. Let's not blow it on people who can't get elected. Anyway, those women you mentioned were at the Heidi Canal party. Funny thing is that you were there at that party because it was also in the same saloon as the Tina Peters party. Yep. It was a place called the Wide Open Saloon in Sedalia. Mm -hmm. And this is in Douglas County in the southern part of the Denver metro area. And these parties for Ganahl and Peters were very separate. Hmm. So Peters was on the rooftop and Ganahl's party was inside the restaurant. And you didn't even have to go through Ganahl's watch party to get to Peters. You know, they were just different entrances. It's funny. So they were in the same place, but they're really not allies. And, you know, actually, Ganahl has tried to stay far, far away from election deniers and election conspiracy theories. She's really tried to avoid commenting at all on that Mm -hmm. stuff one way or the other, whereas Tina Peters is, of course, one of the most prominent election deniers in the state. Mm -hmm. And yet, by this trick of fate, she ends up at the very same venue as, again, the most prominent election denier, perhaps, in the state. Right. So... Weird party. Must have been a a big restaurant, I guess. What was Tina Peters' party like? Well, she was on the rooftop, and it was pleasant because it was very nice weather Tuesday night and a great view of the foothills, so pretty relaxed. Yes, that was nice. Peters is is well-known as the county clerk who was under indictment for allegedly breaching the security of her own election machines Mm -hmm. when she was trying to uncover fraud. Mm -hmm. And I think there were about 30 people or so, and one was pretty recognizable if you cover election conspiracy theories. And it was, yes, exactly. So I I spotted him right away, Joe Oltman. Hmm. He's a conservative podcaster. He lives in Douglas County Mm -hmm. and he started the false theory that's gained a lot of traction, that Dominion voting machines 
switched votes in the 2020 presidential election. Uh-huh. So he, part of that election-denying network that Tina Peters is in. Yes, he's actually being sued right now uh, for defamation mm-hmm. over that allegation. Another person who was there who I've covered quite a bit is Sharona Bishop. She's an ally of Peters, and she lives in Garfield County. And Bishop was actually Boebert's former campaign manager. Well, Lauren Boebert's former campaign manager. Uh, so this was kind of far-right headquarters for a Tuesday night. Yep, there were definitely well-known people in that world who backed Peters. And I was there pretty early in the evening before we were seeing any results. Mm -hmm. And I got a chance to talk to Peters. What God calls you to, he'll see you through. And this is not my battle. From the very beginning when I ran for office, I did it to serve the people. And I want the people to want me. And I was just trying to get a sense of how she was feeling going into the evening. People that stuck with me in the very beginning with all this election, the election irregularities and listen to the truth, they're still with me and I and I can't let them down. So if for some reason the people decide or if there's election irregularities, um, if for some reason I don't win today, we're going to win as a country because all of, this has ignited people all across the country, all across the U.S. Well, as it turned out, the results were not really close. Peters lost. She came in third. Uh, The winner was Pam Anderson, a very moderate candidate for the Secretary of State office who doesn't buy into the election, denying stuff at all. Uh, In second place was a fairly low-profile candidate named Mike O'Donnell. So what happened? That was, uh, we thought that one might be a little closer, I thought. Clearly, a lot of Colorado voters are not comfortable nominating someone to run Colorado's elections who is facing state charges, and there's an ongoing federal investigation. What I'm puzzling over is this Mike O'Donnell guy. Mm -hmm. He won basically just a little bit more than Tina Peters did. If you combined him and Tina Peters, they had a majority of the votes. But, like, what is his deal? He's like this political newcomer. He has cast some doubts on the 2020 election, unlike Pam Anderson, who won. The people who voted for him, what, what could they have been thinking? Maybe like they lean toward Tina Peters style stuff, but they just couldn't go for someone who's literally under indictment or what was it? You know, I don't I don't know. I, I think it probably is a mix. O'Donnell definitely tried to be the candidate running to the middle of both Anderson and Peters. Mm -hmm. He said there were election irregularities, but he never said one way or the other whether 2020 was stolen. So he was focused a lot on voter rolls, cleaning up the voter rolls, being nonpartisan if he's elected. He said he didn't want to relitigate the past. So I could actually see him drawing votes from both Anderson and Peters, but Mm -hmm. I think it would have been undoubtedly a very different race had it just been between Anderson and Peters. You know, a three-way yeah, race changed it a lot. For sure. And it points to the fact that, you know, we're kind of trying to interpret and parse a very complicated thing that hundreds of thousands of people participated in. And it may come out later that there was different motivation. So mm-hmm. disclaimer, we're not omniscient. But the final result was Peters losing. Did, did she accept that? Did she, she concede? She, she didn't. She told attendees that she didn't lose that the race just uncovered more fraud and she's not giving up and she'll have more information later. So the candidate who's consistently denied the results of election has denied that she lost her election, which is really not surprising. So let's zoom out of the individual races here. 
I think despite my caveat earlier about the fact that there, there's some interpretation going on here, we can't say for certain what happened. It is fair to say that the GOP primaries at the statewide level, the farthest right candidates on abortion, on election denial, on a number of issues, lost. And the top of the ticket has one of the most moderate-sounding Republicans that we've seen in the state in a while, Joe O'Day, leading the party, basically. And it's interesting because it wasn't just in those high-profile races. Hmm. Uh, we saw a similar pattern down-ballot as well. For instance, in the clerk and recorder primary in Mesa County, a career professional won that GOP primary race. Because that's a Republican county, that woman will likely be the next clerk and recorder in Mesa County, replacing Tina Peters. Ah. And then there was a coroner's race in El Paso County Uh where a woman who called herself a, quote, freedom doctor was defeated. Freedom doctor. And also in El Paso County, the clerk and recorder who has come under fire for defending the state's election system. Come under fire from far right. From the, yes, from, from far right conservatives. He was running for county treasurer and he handily won his primary. All right, so in a lot of those down-ballot races as well, GOP voters seem to avoid the farther right candidates. Now, before we go, I wanted to make a really important point, because I think listening to this, it'd be easy to assume that this means Republican voters as a whole have repudiated the far right. They all decided, Mm -hmm. "Uh, you know what, I'm going to go this direction now. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. The thing is that, as we talked about last episode, there were tons of new unaffiliated voters involved in this. That's Um, right. You know, record number, actually, for the Republican primary, making up maybe 30% of the electorate, a lot more than they have in the past. And those voters likely leaned moderate or even liberal. And we heard from tons of them who said that they intentionally supported the moderate Republicans, that they wanted to, to kind of send the Republican Party a little bit back towards center. And you know what, Joe O'Day, the Senate nominee, actually gladly accepted that help in his own speech. Colorado wants its leaders to be independent. Michael Bennett is not independent. I am. And that's why tonight, when they counted the votes, independents showed up. They voted for me in this primary, and we're going to work hard to keep them in our coalition this fall. There's a little bit of irony here, because as we talked about in our last episode of Purplish, Uh about unaffiliated voters and their impact, there are lots of people in the GOP, and there were at the time when unaffiliated voters got included in Mm -hmm. primaries, they didn't want unaffiliated voters to participate. Hmm. But it definitely looks like in these races this cycle, Mm -hmm. it really helped the Republican establishment get the candidates they wanted. And theoretically have a better chance in November. And so the people who helped to create this new open primary system who argued it would be a way to result in more moderate state politics, they're pretty happy. This is the first year that it's really delivered quite like this on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, former Republican Governor Bill Owens was one of them. I called him after 9 p.m. on Tuesday night to ask him how he was feeling, and he was quite happy. You know, I was, along with a lot of other people, one of those who helped allow unaffiliateds to vote in the two primaries. Because I thought they could be moderating influences, both in the Democratic primary to keep it from being too leftist. And within my own party's primary, where I'm a conservative, but sometimes we've nominated folks who simply can't win. And I think that the unaffiliateds performed 
that role this evening. At this point, we should mention Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Mm -hmm. She was challenged by a moderate state senator, Don Coram, and she defeated him by a wide margin. Yeah, that's true. That is a counterexample to the idea that, oh, all the moderates won. Uh, There are some other factors there. She was the incumbent. She had a crazy, gigantic financial advantage, tons and tons of money, big national profile. She represents a very Republican district, so it's not like there were maybe as many uh, moderate voters to to Mm -hmm. come in there. Uh, It was a different dynamic, I think. I think that's exactly right. And compared to all of the other statewide races where moderates did win, Bobert has a well-known brand name ID, mm-hmm. and I think that can also make a big difference in the outcome. Yeah, she was much better defined than any of the other candidates in any of these races. So it was going to be an uphill battle to ever defeat her, even if there was a ton of unaffiliated voters getting involved, and it just didn't happen for Don Gorham. Now, my question going forward is, uh, all these moderate unaffiliated voters who people are thinking really reshaped this Republican primary... Are they going to show up for Republicans in the general election, too? I guess that's what we'll be covering in the next few months. I don't know. But uh-huh. I, I definitely think because the more moderate candidates succeeded on primary night, uh-huh. Democrats will now have a tougher challenge because they'll have to run against Republicans who don't say 2020 was a stolen election, who don't hold absolutist anti-abortion views. Although those, they're still farther right than Democrats on it. Exactly. I mean, there's going to be clear policy difference for Colorado voters. So yep. I think it'll be fun to cover all these races. One other thing that this year will not have is as much Donald Trump. You know, Democrats in their big, big successful years in 18 and 20 here were able to run against him. Trump will still kind of be on the ballot in the background, you know, with the ongoing hearings we have now about January 6th and stuff. But uh, these Republicans are trying to move on from Trump pretty quick because they know he's a liability in this state. We're heading into a year that everyone I think we talked to from the right and the left says this is expected to be a red wave, a good year for Republicans Mm -hmm. with gas prices and inflation and and everything else that's going on. So I'll be curious to see what Colorado is going to look like because we've been a very blue state in recent years. So are we more purplish or what are the gains we see Republicans able to make? Yeah, let me close with this. I think a lot of people have, we've said this, made fun of the name of the show, purplish, like, oh, it's blue now and been convinced that there's no way for a Republican Party to come back. And I think a lot of folks on the Democratic side, after this Tuesday primary, are are stopping and checking themselves and saying, well, how blue are we? Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland with Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Follow this and other episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. When we come back, a quarterback who had a lot on his shoulders. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A century ago, Colorado's economy depended upon the sugar beet, a white root vegetable related to red table beets. At the peak of Colorado's sugar rush, as many as 24 refineries around the state beat the beets into pure sucrose and helped reduce the country's dependence on foreign sugar cane. Even the beet byproducts proved valuable. Leftover beet pulp fattened livestock. In Greeley and Eaton, beet syrup sprayed onto dirt streets made a surface as hard as asphalt. And some Coloradans dried and rolled sugar beet leaves for foul-smelling cigars. 
Today, only Fort Morgan's sugar refinery remains in operation, half a century after Americans embraced high fructose corn syrup as their sweetener of choice. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. Marlon Briscoe of the Denver Broncos made history October 6, 1968 as the first black starting quarterback in modern American pro football. Yet after a stellar season, he was out of a job the next year. Briscoe died Monday at age 76. In 2018, I spoke with him about quarterbacking, race, and his legacy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. You had to fight for your chance to play quarterback in the pros. Even though you had played quarterback through high school and at the University of Nebraska, the Broncos put you at defensive back. What what was your response to that choice? Well, first of all, I started when I was Pop Warner. So I've been craving that position for a long time, since I was 10 years old. When I got drafted uh, out of college in the 14th round by the Broncos, they, of course, drafted me as a defensive back. Uh, That's what they did to black quarterbacks who, if they did make it to the uh, collegiate level playing quarterback, that's what they did. They said that, you know, you're a great athlete, so you can play other positions. What do you think their reasoning was? Well, because they didn't think a black man could think, throw, and lead on that level. I had a stellar career in college as a quarterback. I made All-American Recently, a couple of years ago, I made the Collegiate Hall of Fame, and I negotiated my own contract, and in those negotiations, you know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. How is a 14th-round draft choice when it's only 17 rounds going to dictate, you know, the conditions of a of a contract. I said, well, you know, that's what I'm going to do. If, if, if I can't get that three-day trial, I was going to go ahead and teach school. All I wanted was a forum to showcase my skills. I never thought that I was going to get, you know, a level playing field, but they acquiesced to my so-called demands. Where did you get the, the confidence to ask for those three days? Well, you know, first of all, you know, we're talking about the 60s where black America had different approach to life and and self-esteem. We as African-Americans wanted to be heard, especially 1968. 1968 was one of the most pivotal years of change in the history of this country, if not the world. And so it was seemed like appropriate time (laughs) that somebody stood up. And let me just say a bit more about 1968. Of course, that's the year the Civil Rights Act was passed. It's also the year Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So is Robert F. Kennedy. And at the Olympics, two African-American athletes drew criticism for raising a fist on the medal stand during the national anthem. Uh, But to advance your story, you made history when you started for the Broncos at home on October 6th, 1968. That was not the first time you took a snap for them. Uh, That came the week before against the Boston Patriots. Ten minutes left in the game, the Broncos are behind, and the starting quarterback gets injured. The coach calls your name. What was it like to walk into that game? Well, I've always been a quarterback and not a black quarterback. So 
other people, including my players, probably were more nervous than I was. Here, I just assumed a position that I've always assumed, and that was the leader. And uh, I went out there with the idea, hey, complete that first pass, and let's play ball. And so the first pass that I threw, I made sure that I completed it. Was, I, I know it to this day. It was a slant to Eric Crabtree, gained 22 yards, and we were up and running. Huh. You know, we went down, scored, got the ball again, went down, and uh, we almost really pulled the game out. After your debut against the Patriots, the Broncos announced that you'd start as quarterback the next week against Cincinnati at the newly renamed Mile High Stadium in Denver. What do you remember about taking the field on that day? Well, it wasn't symbolic to me. It was something that I had always done. I was a quarterback, not a black quarterback, a quarterback. So I never really realized the impact that that day would have until Ebony Magazine uh, did this four-page spread on me. And I realized then the importance, not only for black America, but for white America as well. I tell you, that day was also historic because the first black center, Walter Highsmith, played at center that day. And he was the first black center to play in the NFL. And he and I were a duo out there Nobody really realized it because everything was revolved around my starting uh, huh. that day. So he, Walt started that day as well. He, he was with the Broncos? Yeah. What was the reaction from fans that day at Mile High? Well, they were very, very supportive. See, that was one of the fan backlash was one of the fears of management and, you know, naysayers that if a black man was playing quarterback, that the fans wouldn't show up for the games. I'll tell you what, Denver fans backed me wholeheartedly. And, you know, with those fans showing up week by week by week, you know, that was a tribute to Denver at, at, at that particular time. I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off uh, in any other city. I don't know. And then you have to look at another thing, like the players on the team. My entire line, beside Walt Highsmith that particular day, my entire line were white players from the South, except Mike Hearn. He was from Ohio State. They were from Mississippi, uh, LSU, uh, Alabama, and not only had they not played with or for a black quarterback, when they were in college until they got to the pros, they never played with a black player. Wow. And so... But, but you, you that, had their you know, respect. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it, and that's what sports does. I suppose that's what sports does in the best of all possible worlds. It's, it's, not, exactly. auto, it's not automatic, I suppose. It, it's interesting. You've said that you're not a black quarterback. You're a quarterback. And my understanding is that, that fans who came to see you didn't come to see the black guy. They came to see the little guy. Exactly. <laughs> you were exactly five ten and about one hundred seventy seven pounds, so not the biggest player by any means. Well, I was six three two ten on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> you had a great season. You threw for three hundred thirty five yards in one game, a rookie record that stood until broken by John Elway. Uh, you even rushed for three hundred eight yards, 
And yet when Broncos head coach Lou Saban started planning for the next year, he didn't want you as quarterback. How did you find out? Well, I I had lacked six hours from graduating. So I decided to go back and, and, and get my degree back in Omaha. Then I get a phone call from my cousin telling me that they were having quarterback meetings with, and why wasn't I there? And so uh, I finished up my requirements to get my degree, surreptitiously went to the Broncos headquarters, walked in the front door and, and sat down and waited for them to come out of their office, uh, the three of them and, and, the, and the quarterback coach. They walked out of the room and they couldn't even look at me in, in the eye. And do you think all this is because you were black? Absolutely. You know, fan reaction, player reaction, you know, no, none of those neg- negative things played out. So they couldn't use those as an excuse. You left the Broncos to play for Buffalo and later for the Miami Dolphins, won two Super Bowls, but you never played quarterback again. And I wonder if that was painful for you. Oh, absolutely. I I was runner-up for rookie of the year. And not only did I have Bronco records, I still have NFL records. I was the only player in the history of the NFL that started at four different positions. I was also the first black holder of extra points and field goals in the history of the NFL. I also have 18.2 yards per completion, which is still in the in the archives of, of the NFL. So I had a Hall of Fame career, if you, if, you, if you think about it. But, you know, not to be able to uh, fulfill that Ate at me probably through my life, just like it, it has other black quarterbacks like Jefferson Street Joe and, and James Harris, and guys that never got an opportunity to compete uh, on, on the same level playing field as, quite frankly, white quarterbacks. Marlon, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, enjoyed it. Go Broncos. Marlon Briscoe, the first black starting quarterback in modern American football, speaking with me in 2018. He died Monday at age 76. The Denver Broncos released a statement calling Briscoe a pioneer who shattered barriers. He paved the way for countless others and created an indelible legacy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. I think of the Colorado Matters team as extended family. Heck, I spend more time with them than my relatives. So I'm excited to share that our team is growing. Please help me welcome host and producer Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You've been hearing her on the air in recent weeks, but let's get to know her a little bit more now. Hi, Chandra. Hi, Ryan. You have practiced journalism in your native New Orleans, in Atlanta, Nashville, Cleveland, Birmingham, but Colorado's been your home for the past decade. Uh, What have you been up to journalistically in that time here in Denver? 
Well, I actually uh, celebrated my 10-year anniversary in Colorado recently, like just this week. But most of my time was spent raising my family. I have two young kids. I'm married. I also live with my mom, also another New Orleans native. And uh, somehow in the middle of all of that, found time to produce some award-winning journalism work for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, NBCnews.com. Also did some stuff for NPR. And my most recent byline is in The Hollywood Reporter. Oh. And uh, I also have written for the Denver Urban Spectrum. And Ebony is on the list, too. Yes, yes. Uh, You also produced In the Gap, a podcast for Chicago-based magazine In These Times, about how pay inequity, as you say, affects the lives and livelihoods of Black women. Uh, Let's check out a little bit of that. We were out at lunch, and it was just me and him, and we were just talking about work and joking around. And, um, you know, I think it just leisurely came out like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm just making this amount. And, you know, and I was like, oh, that's neat. Like, you know, we did the same job, the same exact job, to be specific. And, you know, we sat right next to each other. We both took calls and solved trouble tickets. And so it's like, huh. What did he say? He said he made a certain amount of money Mm -hmm. and— it was how was how did that compare to what you were making? I was forty to forty five thousand less than that number. So I was very um immediately shocked that, you know, I was offered so much lower and I was there longer. I had more tenure. So I was immediately confused. But of course we were at lunch and so I, I tried to just kind of put a smile on my face behind all this pain because I'm like, how in the world am I getting paid? a significant amount less than him. And Chandra, you were actually a guest on Colorado Matters, a show you now host, uh, talking about your podcast project back in 2020. Yes, it was exciting to be a guest on Colorado Matters. It was one of my first interviews during the pandemic. So I was really just excited. Maybe I was just excited to get out of to my house. To see people. To get out of my house <laughs> and um, be around people. But I would have never imagined that I would be hosting this show with you. So it's such an honor. That podcast, In the Gap, did win an award from the Association of Women in Communications. Won a Clarion Award for that. And I actually recorded it at a studio not too far from here. I worked with House of Pod, and it was really an eye-opening experience for me personally to look at how inequality in pay affects the lives and livelihoods of Black women. And how that can reverberate for years, for a lifetime, across generations for that matter. You have hinted at this. There's public radio in your background at WABE in Atlanta. What stands out from your time there, Chandra? Yeah, so I was working for the Juvenile Justice Information Exchange, covering juvenile justice at that time. And I'm a big believer in partnerships. So I reached out to WABE, the Atlanta affiliate of NPR, and came up with an idea to partner on this project. And it was about juvenile justice. Yeah, it was actually an interesting story, uh, pre, way pre-COVID, about uh, an alternative school that had essentially sent some troubled children home with laptops to figure out their schooling alone without much support. Mm. And I can't take credit for it, but I will say that the superintendent did resign shortly thereafter. So, Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm curious what excites you about the new... Colorado Matters role? 
I think what excites me most is just being able to finally just hone in on Colorado. I've been here 10 years. I feel like I'm an official resident (laughs) of Colorado. And um, I've had to write about Colorado more from a national perspective. But uh, I like the idea of just kind of honing in on Colorado. And also, I'm a really big believer in community connections. And so I'm looking forward to doing that. On the lighter side, Chandra is a huge, huge fan of musician Prince. This is one of the first things we learned about her. She's written about him throughout her journalism career, uh, even references her fandom in her Twitter bio. Uh, How did you become so infatuated with the purple one? Well, actually, as we mentioned, I'm originally from New Orleans and uh, had a chance to see him live at the Superdome during his Purple Rain tour. Oh, and uh, well, you, of course, you must have been a kid then. Oh, I was an infant, actually. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but uh, it was an exciting time, and just the drama of watching this live and flowers falling from the ceiling and Prince uh, shooting the uh, audience with water from his guitar. It was a bit much for a young kid, but I did enjoy <laughs> it, and it made such an impression that I have found a way to incorporate Prince into so many moments of my life. Uh, My husband did veto naming any of our children Prince. Oh, okay. (laughs) But I did manage to uh, incorporate Prince songs into my wedding and even my recent vow renewal in Las Vegas. Oh, congrats. Is it true that the day he died, you got so many calls of just condolences. It's like you were a relative. Exactly. It was so crazy. Like you would have thought that I actually knew Prince. Like <laughs> my phone, I had text, and I actually wrote a piece for NBCnews.com. So I kind of had to like put my emotions aside and focus on and writing the this work. story about Prince. But it was a very emotional time, and um, I appreciate my friends reaching out and checking on me. I understand that come football season, you have some divided allegiances when it comes to cheering for the Broncos. Absolutely. I am New Orleans to the core. Uh And it has been tough, but we had Peyton Manning for a while, so that helped ease it a little bit. Yes, it's a nice connection. Yeah, but I am a diehard Saints fan. Who dat? (laughs) And you can catch my family at Stoney's, the sports bar, filled with uh, Saints fans on Sundays during football season. But I will say I came here via Atlanta, and now that Russell Wilson is the new quarterback (laughs) and his wife, Sierra, the singer, is a big Atlantan, a big native Atlantan as well. Now I feel like I can root for them. Maybe we'll go to her store together. Absolutely. You want to do that? I would okay. love to go. Before we wrap up, uh, we should note that even beyond Prince, Chandra is a big music fan, recently attended her first Red Rocks concert. Uh, we asked you to choose a song that sort of embodies your love of music and your hometown of New Orleans. Uh, what did you choose and why? Well, I chose Rebirth Brass Band's song called Casanova, and it's kind of a big hit that brings down the house, so to speak, at any party or gathering. You know, you can't listen to it without kind of swaying or tapping your foot, and I guess I get a little emotional because it really makes me think about my hometown and how I love the culture and, of course, the food and the music of New Orleans. So uh, I try to bring that flavor here to Colorado. Well, does that mean, wait, you're going to make the team gumbo? Uh, No, but it means I'm going to make you do the second line dance, Ryan, Uh and um, and we'll pull out some umbrellas and we'll have a good old time. Okay. Chandra, (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. I'm I'm so glad to be here. My new co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and that is Colorado Matters for today. 
I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.